Welcome to IFA Talk, IFA Magazine's weekly podcast. IFA Talk is for professional investors only. Thank you. Thanks very much for joining us for the latest episode of IFA Talk, IFA Magazine's weekly podcast, where we talk to people who matter about the things that matter in the world of financial services. I'm Brandon Russell, online writer here at IFA Magazine, and joining me on the podcast this week is our editor, Sue Whitbread. Hello, everyone. Now, a little confession before we start this uh, this next edition of IFA Talk, in that I'm not exactly, for those of you who know me, a Prada-wearing, Cartier-embossed consumer myself, but I was really interested to see that Artemis is intending to launch a new global equity strategy, uh, tapping into the investment potential of leading consumer brands. So the leading consumer brand strategy uh, will be looking to benefit from changing appetites for powerful brands like me, like these, because not everyone is like me. The strategy, which will be managed by Suetha Ramachandran, and you may well have I've heard Suetha on many of her BBC radio interviews as she's a, a, a regular market commentator there. Uh, Suetha's just recently joined Artemis from GAM as a fund manager. And I'm very pleased to say that she's joining us today on the podcast. So Suetha, welcome to IFA Talk. Thank you very much for having me, Sue and Brandon. Well, it's our pleasure. Could I ask then that we start off by asking you to give us a little bit of an introduction to you, and your background before you've joined Artemis. Of course. Uh, yes, yeah, so I've just joined Artemis. Uh, it's my fifth week here now. Um, and I joined from GAM, where I spent over a decade. Uh, prior to that, I'd actually started my career in Asia, covering Asian airlines uh, at Goldman Sachs, then moved to Paris for a few years, worked for an ESG ratings agency there, uh, and then moved to London again to start, start working both on the sell and buy side. So I've been on the investing side for about 15 years now, and for the last four and a half years prior to uh, joining Artemis, I was managing uh, the GAM Luxury Brands Fund at GAM. And I'm very excited about uh, the upcoming launch of the consumer brand strategy at uh, Artemis. Well, I can imagine you are, that's for sure. Sounds like sounds like an interesting one to me too. Yeah, definitely. Sweet. It's great to meet you. So getting stuck straight into it then. Why is Artemis going to launch a strategy on brands? Is it not tricky timing with the global economy being so fragile at the moment? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And if we look at brands, they have really stood the test of time, downturn or no downturn. Brand power is actually very strongly correlated to share price performance, particularly in the consumer world. Uh, and I know, Sue, you referenced uh, Prada and Cartier as two examples, but and while you may not favor them, perhaps you bought yourself a lipstick from L'Oreal or a bottle of whiskey from Diageo, from J Johnny Walker. So all of these are actually uh, an example of how consumer brands are much more wide ranging than we sometimes imagine them to be. And they really touch every part of our lives. And um, this is why over time we see that the strength of a brand is very strongly correlated to the returns that shareholders can derive from them. Uh, in addition, the shape of the global consumer is changing. Global consumption is shifting more towards the East where the emerging middle class is rising up as a force in their own right. We also have the influence of younger generations such as millennials, but also Gen Z and Gen Alpha who have very distinct consumption patterns uh, where you know aspects of their behavior like gaming, for example, can lead them into discovering consumer brands for the first time. Uh, and then of course we have the overlaying importance of sustainability where this buy less but buy better uh, mindset 
has really fueled adoption among younger consumers for brands that are tried and tested. And of course, we only have to look back three years to the COVID pandemic to realize that that was a time when actually people really went back to what they knew and trusted rather than to more experimental brands that they may have favored uh, in the times leading up to it. And that those we believe are structural forces that give us a long-term tailwind well beyond any short-term macroeconomic disruptions that lead us to believe in the power of brands to generate superior shareholder returns. Mm, interesting, Suetha. Uh, you alluded there to some big macro changes that are going on. Um, I wonder, you're obviously a global equity manager. And while we're familiar with the big names, the, the US, the European companies and brands that trade globally, is it the case then that the, the market is changing a little bit here? Uh, yes, absolutely. So consumer brands and many leading consumer brands do have their home in Europe in a similar way to how technology brands, for example, have stolen a march by uh, being based in the US. So there are some regional advantages that, that uh, accrue to brands by virtue of them being based in Europe, not least of which are having honed a supply chain over centuries. If we look at a brand like Burberry, for example, it's been around since 1856. There are very few new brands that can compete with that kind of heritage and provenance. At the same time, I alluded earlier to the consumer changing. And of course, as the consumer changes, where these brands originate from and who they resonate with will change as well. Um, I'll give you an example of a category in China, which is uh, the spirits category. And uh, if we look at Baiju, which is a fermented rice wine liquor, which we may not be at all familiar with here in the West, it actually contributes to about 98% of all spirits uh, market revenues in China. So again, that market is very geared into this one category where again, the uh, listed vehicles through which we can invest and benefit from this trend are actually only um, investable in locally. Similarly, India, second largest gold uh, jewelry market in the world, and it's not necessarily the foreign brands like Tiffany that are winning this market, it is local brands. So this sector is really a truly global sector made up of by a combination of both US and European companies, but also increasingly Asian companies that are catering to specific consumer tastes in the specific markets that they're operating in. Oh, so I may be drinking a beige and tonic in the not too distant future then, who knows? <laughs> yes, and maybe wearing an, uh, a diamond ring from India while doing it. You are listening to IFA Talk, IFA Magazine's weekly podcast. Subscribe to us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts to be notified as soon as a new episode becomes available. And follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram at IFA Magazine. You mentioned uh, China there. Obviously, it's always been a big market for brands, hasn't it? So is the slump over there likely to be an issue? So the slump over there is very much a temporary uh, issue, we believe. And in fact, um, the, the the one of the features is that the recovery has not been as strong as was anticipated, not that there is not any recovery at all. So if we look at many leading consumer brands, Nike is a great example. They just reported results last week where they were commenting on a recovery in China, similar to many other consumer brands that are operating. It has perhaps not been as ebullient as hoped for, given what we saw in the West, where immediately upon exiting lockdowns, there was this sort of burst of revenge shopping, revenge conviviality, you know, revenge everything to make up for the lost um, time of our lives where we had to stay at home. So in China, I think it has been a bit more wearing of an experience because the lockdowns have been carrying on for three years. So in some ways, people have adapted their behaviors over a longer time frame. But what we think is far more relevant about China as a leading market for global consumer brands 
is the fact that it's adding more people to the middle class than virtually any other country in the world. So China's middle class today of 400 million people is expected to double to 800 million by the end of the current decade. There are more and more people in China seeking to trade up or to premiumize their lifestyles and their consumption habits. And that really is the driving engine for the sector's growth, along with other emerging markets. So India, for example, which is in a much earlier stage of its growth than China is going to be the next consumer market. We also have other markets in Southeast Asia where disposable income is growing very nicely. So all of these mean that uh, the emerging world remains a very strong motor for global consumption. Mm. And you don't see the the, the, the well-documented problems in the property market in China as, as impacting too much on that? So we believe the, uh, the key for the Chinese market is really about penetration. So you're right that the property market, because it contributes to about 30% of Chinese GDP, is being particularly impacted at the moment. But these leading brands are really very small in China, even today. So if we look at a brand like, let's, let's say, let's take Louis Vuitton as an example. Of a middle class of 400 million people in China, it's estimated that they have no more than maybe 7 million customers. So they're really scratching the surface in terms of the potential addressable market there. The former CEO of L'Oreal, he said his ambition was to put a lipstick in the hands of every Chinese woman. It's estimated that China, uh, cosmetics penetration in China is about one-sixth the levels that it is uh, in the US or in Japan, and the Japan being a very similar kind of cosmetics and skincare oriented market as China. So as wealth grows in China, we believe that the penetration opportunities for these brands remain substantial. Yeah, sounds good. Gosh, so we're, we're rapidly coming to a close on this one today. Uh, I'd like to switch it now, if we could, to our, our listeners today who will be thinking about where does this sit in my client portfolios? You know, Is it something of a diversifier? So when I'm considering my asset allocation strategies, where does this sit? Uh, be really grateful to, to hear your views on that. Yeah, I mean, of course, uh, investors who are interested in mega trends or themes would find themselves inter interested in the middle class consumer theme, because this is quite distinct from perhaps other thematic offerings in the market, which perhaps are focused on decarbonization or on technology. This is very much about consumer, but very specifically around the impact that the changing shape of global middle class consumption is going to have on companies and on the rest of the world. So it acts as a, a, a theme offering for uh, investors who are interested in something different from the uh, technology and uh, energy offerings perhaps um, in the market and of course also as a diversifier so the project uh, the, the aim of the fund is really to be quite concentrated have about 25 to 35 different stocks uh, and invest in these companies around the world that are benefiting from these themes while offering very strong growth potential as well as high returns on invested capital so to that extent we are also offering somewhat of a thematic purity in that we will avoid investing in technology stocks, um, which we know some other funds in the market do, and to offer a real pure play into the consumption angle for investors. Um, and of course, we are also exposed to emerging market growth. So in a way, this is an also an alternative to invest in as an alternative to investing in emerging market stocks directly. The potential with this strategy is to get access to emerging market growth, but via developed market equities, which often trade offer a lower cost of capital, um, as well as uh, trade offer better governance as well. So that's interesting. It'd be quite a concentrated portfolio, quite focused portfolio, I guess, really. I just wonder whether the, 
is there greater pricing power on these particular brands? So therefore, could it be even deemed maybe just a bit more defensive given where we're going? I don't know. Yeah, no, that's a really uh, excellent point. And in fact, there's an index that I track called the Forbes Cost of Living Extremely Well Index. Uh, and it, this is an <laughs> index under that that uh, Forbes magazine tracks, which is a basket of everything that they think you need to live extremely well. Um, you know, including private jet, uh, private jet flights, uh, fur coats, psychiatrist visits, thoroughbred. No <laughs> it it spans the range really. <laughs> And if we track actually the performance of this index relative to CPI reliably over the 41 years that this index has been um, constructed over, we can see that it reliably outpaces US CPI by a wide margin. So you are absolutely right that these um, products ultimately do have pricing power, which is secular, not cyclical. In many other industries, as soon as commodity prices come down, they the, the, the products and the brands or the companies have to roll back their pricing and pass it back onto the consumer. Leading consumer brands are in a privileged position where they get to keep the pricing power because consumers almost accept it. And in fact, it's built into the brand equity. So to reduce prices would actually be more harmful to their brand than not to. And that is really why these brands have secular pricing power. There's actually some data that suggests that if you had bought an Hermes Birkin bag in 1980, you would have generated more in annualized returns than if you'd invested in the S&P 500 or bought gold, which of course is not a scalable investment strategy, which is why we think investing in a basket of these companies that make these products is a better way to generate uh, uh, returns over the long term. Maybe I need to shape up a little bit so I, uh, and start looking at these with a different viewpoint from now on. Yes, yeah. indeed. Oh. <laughs> Unfortunately, Swetha, we'll have to end there for today. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. And also thanks to our listeners for tuning in. It's been a really, really great episode and we'll be sure to keep an eye on how the strategy gets on. Thank you. I look forward to being in touch. IFA Talk is for investment professionals only. All material has been carefully checked for accuracy, but no responsibility can be accepted for inaccuracies. Whatever appropriate, independent research and whatever necessary legal advice should be sought before acting on any information contained in this podcast and value of investments and income from them can go down as well as up. You may not get back the amount you originally invested.